0: I'm Al Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for poems that interest us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves, as part of our PennSound archive, writing.upenn.edu/pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler Studio by Kristen Gallagher, poet, editor, and professor, living in Sunnyside, Queens, most of the time when she's not in Florida who teaches English at LaGuardia Community College, part of the CUNY system, who was a founding member of the Writer's House back in 1995-96, whose book We Are Here, published in 2011, is 99 pages of writing and transcriptions of recorded speech that capture human interactions with maps, GPS-enabled devices, and other directional media whose essay Cooking a Book with Low-Level Durational Energy or How to Read Tan Lin's Seven Control Vocabularies just came out in a book called Reading the Difficulties, published by Alabama, and whose essay Teaching Free Air and CUNY Open Admissions was recently anthologized. And by Kathy Lou Schultz, a poet, scholar, and author of the Afro-Modernist epic and literary history Tolson Hughes Baraka who has been invited by the Project on the History of Black Writing at the University of Kansas to be a visiting faculty member for the Black Poetry after the Black Arts Movement Institute, who performs poetry with musicians and appears on the Dr. Guy's Musicology CD, The Colored Waiting Room, and who frequently appears live with the Prism Ensemble in Memphis, and who was for some years a Philadelphian and a beloved italicized beloved member of the writer's house community and by bruce andrews experimental poet performance writer literary theorist and recently retired left-wing political science professor who as musical how does he get a how does he get left wing in there it's legit everybody else too on poem talk just about but bruce in particular uh, left-wing political science professor retired who as a musical director for Sally Silvers and Dancers has created sound designs and in-performance live mixes of music and text for over two decades, whose most recent of a dozen or so Big books is, you can't have everything, where would you put it? Followed, it's not a question mark, where would you put it? Exclamation point. Followed by a chapbook, Yesified, Sally's Edit, a text that helps celebrate the 2012 Andrews Symposium, which along with critical essays and tons of other Andrews-related materials can be found at FordhamEnglish.com slash Bruce hyphen Andrews, Bruce Andrews with a hyphen in the middle. Welcome all of you. Kathy Lou, welcome back.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So tell us about performing with the Prism Ensemble. The Prism, what do you do?
1: The Prism Ensemble in Memphis is a chamber music group. Their express goal is to make chamber music accessible to um, the public, anybody that might happen to see the performance and come in and might not know anything about classical music at all. And they do these um, multi-arts performances, so um, it will be a group of musicians along with me and a modern dancer, and they'll have an art installation.
0: Next time I'm in Memphis, I'll put time on by. All right, that sounds cool. And Kristen, welcome back also to your old haunt. Thank you from Florida, where you're writing a book
2: writing about a all book? kinds
0: of issues together.
2: Yeah, about um, many, many things, including the weirdness, the sublime beauty, the tragic loss of nature, and uh, many of the um, police killings that we are have been worked right up down about the block from where upset. you're staying. Yeah, just about,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, we're glad you're here, and Bruce, welcome to the to poem talk for the first time that seems very weird and now that you're a retired left-wing professor maybe you you
3: realize you said we're all left-wing but (laughs) it was an adjective and it's an adjective rarely applied to the phrase political science professor. <laughs> that's, right. Uh-huh. that's
0: right. That's right. We're in the wrong field. That's, that's right. <laughs>
3: that's right. Well, today we've... Oh, no, you're uh, in the right field. We're in the right field. I was that's in the right. wrong field yeah, for yeah. 38 years. We should years. have an all
0: political science pump talk. That would be fun. And then you could be the only left winger in the room. Uh, we've just lost the six or seven political science listeners to poem talk that we've had. I'm sorry. Mm. But um, farewell. Come back when you get a chance. Uh, well, today we've come uh, together to talk about a poem by Bob Perlman, it's called Confession, and it's the first poem in the book titled The Future of Memory, published by Roof Books in 1998. Perlman's pens out page includes two recordings of him performing this poem, and the one we'll hear was part of a reading he gave at this very Kelly Writer's House on January 26, 1999, and I think there's a good chance three of us, maybe even all four, were in the room for that reading. So here
4: now is Bob Perlman reading Confession. Confession. This is uh, the inside story of uh, language writing. Aliens have inhabited my aesthetics for decades. (laughs) Really, since the early 70s. Before that, I pretty much wrote as myself, though young. But, (laughs) But something has happened to my memory, my judgment. Apparently, my will has been affected. That old stuff, the fork in the head, First home run, dad falling out of the car. I can remember the words, but I can't get back there anymore. I think they must be screening my sensations. I'm sure my categories have been messed with. I look at the anthologies in the big chains and campus bookstores, even the small press opium dens. All those stanzas against that white space. They just look like the models in the catalogs. The models have arms and legs and a head, The poems mostly don't, but other than that, it's hard, for me anyway, to tell them apart. There's the sexy underwear poem, the sturdy work boot poem you could wear to a party in a pinch, the little (laughs) blaspheming dress poem. There's variety, you say, the button-down Oxford with off-rhymed cuffs, the epic toga showing some ancient ankle. The behold, the world is changed, and finally I'm normal, flowing robe and shorts. <laughs> the full nude, the scatter. Yes, I, suppo- there's, I suppose there's variety, but the looks, those come on and read me for the inner you I've locked onto with my cultural capital sensing device looks. No thanks, Jay Peterman. No thanks, ordinary <laughs> evening in New Haven. I'm just waiting for my return ticket to have any meaning for those saucer-shaped clouds to lower. The authorities deny any visitations, hardly a surprise. And I myself deny them. Think about it. What could motivate a group of egg-headed, tentacled, slimier-than-thou aestheticians with techniques far beyond ours to visit earth, abduct naive poets, and inculcate them with otherworldly forms that are also, if you believe the tabloids, salacious? And these abductions always seem to take place in some provincial setting. Isn't that more than slightly suspicious? Why don't they ever reveal themselves hovering over some New York publishing venue? It would be nice to get some answers here. We might learn something about poetry, if nothing else. But I'm not much help, since I'm an abductee, at least in theory, though, like I say, I don't remember much. But this writing seems pretty normal. Complete sentences, semicolons, yada yada. I seem to have lost my avant-garde card in the laundry. They say that's typical. Well, you'll just have to use your judgment, earthlings. (laughs) Judgment, that's your job. Back to work, as if you could leave. And you thought gravity was a problem. Well, uh, let's start very generally. Um, So I hear two
0: running conceits or maybe two running stories one is an abduction like a sci-fi alien abduction story or a brainwashing story and then there's another one that's about uh canonical poetry anthologization um a kind of poetry that's either standard or a marginalized poetry how do the if i'm right about those two stories and there might be others how do you put those two together what what is bob perlman playing with
1: well, I think right away he's playing with the surface of the page because there's an idea of an alien aesthetic alongside this very pretty surface because the poem is written in couplets. So if you look at it, <laughs> there's nothing really alien, apparently, upon first look at the aesthetic itself because it's very nicely laid out in pairs.
0: What anti-communists used to call boring from within. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not boring as in boring, mm-hmm. but, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: penetrating. Bruce?
3: I'm taken off a little bit from something you said in our invitation, which was that you'd pick this poem because it echoed themes and topics running throughout the book. Right. So, right. B- by the way, I asked, staying with Bob and Francie, overnight last night, I asked Bob, uh, what, what was Confession about? And he said, oh, it's about language writing. Which um, he says in the introduction that's right yeah. which I didn't. I hadn't heard. Quote, it. this is in the, the inside story of language writing. Right. But in the book, I find much more skepticism... About this project, so I think there's this running dialogue in Bob's head in the book about the values of conventional writing and his valorizing of this more avant-garde f- stuff, which he's now attributing to alien abduction. You know, or as, so it's not. You know, instead of the anxiety of influence, it's more like the the alien abduction of influence, Fascinating. or as influence.
0: I'm going to add to that a memory of modernism or a, a, a lineage from modernism that is not so much in this poem except for the reference to Wallace Stevens in Ordinary Evening in New Haven but in the book and i counted the references we have a reference besides Stevens to make it new Soutine, Moore Marion Moore the baroness Elsa von Freytag-Loringhoven Ezra Pound Eliot Klebnikov William Carlos Williams Eliot again D H Lawrence maybe Stein Joyce Proust Duchamp so there's a lot of modernism here does this help with this anxiety about ambivalence about where he stands poetically and all that did I did what I say make any sense
2: um well I can respond to what you're saying (laughs) even if it doesn't make sense (laughs) oh thanks Kristen thanks thanks for coming
0: all this way to (laughs) tell (laughs) the host that the question (laughs) was really a bad question
2: well I mean I think of all of Bob's work as really the work of this master dialectician right so Mm -hmm. he's never You know, absolutely sure whether he loves or hates the avant garde, right? I think it's always something that's being tossed around and looked at from different perspectives. Um, And then this inheritance that he has, right? The dream, I guess, of modernism, the dream of experiment. Yeah. Well, even this one, this is this has kind of like a, a waking up from a dream-like quality, right? Like, I have these images, I have these ideas of things that have happened, but I can't get back there, right? It's kind of like a scary dream memory aporia kind of situation.
0: So, I, Bruce opened the door for me to um, a complicated reading of The Memory Loss. Memory, The Memory Loss is either because... Um, He's satirizing and ironizing and mocking criticisms of, let's say, language writing that, oh, you people are just you're totally um, indoctrinated mm-hmm. and you're not you're, you're not really speaking as a, a lyric individualized poet. You're just following a party line, which is the sort of, I would say, anti-communist attacks or the equivalent of anti-communist, anti-modernist attacks on language writing, but also possibly that he's actually saying maybe I've lost my lyric memory or maybe I've lost my memory of where I came from. And I'm a little worried about that. The abduction story might be right. Do you see both of those things? And what do you want to do with memory?
1: Well, I I see much of this as being um, in a dialectical relationship as well, the way Kristen was talking about it. Um, So if we think about past and future... There's certainly a dialectical relationship going on there. There's this kind of looping effect with the reader in the middle as the conduit. So anybody could pick this up at any time and they would be the conduit between the past and the future because there seems to be the possibility of actual memories within this. So it's not just anti-memory. The fork in my head, first home run, dad falling out of the car. Those are traditional memories that I assume he's
0: ironizing because they're silly confessional poetry kind of memories.
1: But there's a possibility held out that there could actually be memory. So it's kind of a conventional in and against about the confessional rather than just throwing it out. You know, it's not Anne Sexton, but it's sort of about the confessional rather than completely against it
3: just to toss in some quotes from other parts of the book page 38 he's taught questioning that the idea that the memory as personal so he says the page is no one's mm-hmm. page 15 talks about no one's speech uh and then another place he talks he says the era of the single-handed sentence is nearing a close you know so is, he's and that, serious about that right at another point seventy nine. He's, he's talking about memory as a Möbius strip, and he says we want some live fucking feeling turned inside out. He's valorizing these possibilities, acknowledging that they do undermine the possibility of of possessive memory on the part of the individual. Um, the, two nights ago, I was reading early an early the early work of Ted Pearson, an um, old friend of Bob's, and he, there's a quote I wanted to mention on this: "Language is the memory of memory, poetry." What language remembers? Mm-hmm. So there's that same, you know, that same issue: whether the memory is in the, the the social collectivized language, or whether it's something that you can take as a personal token and, you know, parade around with yourself, even though that era seems long gone, right? The lyric, self-centered era. But if somebody then, hearing
0: all that, takes exception to it, and comes by in 1950s style, which is also in this book, Manchurian Candidate, it's actually early 60s, but in a Cold War uh, sci-fi freak-out conspiracy theory style and wants to criticize that aesthetic, saying that all this is alien, all this stuff you guys are doing is inhuman and isn't about memories. Kristen, is that here in this poem? Um, Am I overreading the alien story?
2: No, gosh, no. I think that's absolutely central. And I'm Pretty well in agreement with what's been said so far. I mean, the poem is titled "Confession," so you think, okay, confessional, a confession. It's going to be direct. And the very next thing is, you know, aliens have invaded my aesthetics, right? So who is this thing giving us a confession, right? Like, what is the self? It's already in dialogue. It's already questioned. And then memory becomes this important part of it, right? Like, um, I have this, you know, these images, right? Dad falling out of the car, but. I can't get back there. I know the words, but I can't get back there. It might not even be me. They might have been implanted in me by these aliens or, you know.
4: Aliens have inhabited my aesthetics for decades. <laughs> really, since the early 70s. Before that, I pretty much wrote as myself, though young. But, <laughs> but something has happened to my memory, my judgment. Apparently, my will has been affected. That old stuff, the fork in the head... First home run, dad falling out of the car. I can remember the words, but I can't get back there anymore. I think they must be screening my sensations. I'm sure my categories have been messed with. I look at the anthologies in the big chains and campus bookstores, even the small press opium dens. All those stanzas against that white space. They just look like the models in the catalogs.
0: Can we close read the memories just in case there are all each individually valenced readings of them. That Mm -hmm. old stuff I take to be not unironic, Mm -hmm. that old stuff. The fork in my head, Mm -hmm. first home run, that's like a standard positive, but fork in the head, clearly not.
1: Fork in the head head, is like the aliens in your aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Either that
0: or it's um, a suburban 50s dinner table
1: in
3: Ohio. No, it's the exhibit we saw yesterday at the Mudder Museum of the person with the (laughs) giant (laughs) rod, the woman with the giant rod coming right out of her fucking center of her forehead.
0: (laughs) Which is certainly the underside of, Unicorns of are real. conformist fifties American family <laughs> so, life. So there exactly. would be a problem. So with next to if first home fork run, in fork in the head is uh, odd. Dad falling out of the car. I assume he's drunk. It's your alcoholic dad. You got to take over. Dry- I don't know. I'm overreading that. Um, well,
3: remember he also says at another point in the book, "Don't forget the old pleasures." One of which is, of course, seeing your drunken dad fall out of the car. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so those are not straight. Memories.
1: Well, I would go back to this idea that it's more about play rather than just erasure because he is, again, writing in couplets, and he's also writing in sentences, which he refers to. He says, um, but this writing seems pretty normal. Complete sentences, semicolons, yada, yada, yada. I seem to have lost my avant-garde guard card in the laundry. And he refers to that, his avant-garde card in, in other poems. That's a laugh poems. line. All those are right. laugh lines. But it actually is in complete sense. It's actually true. At the same time that it's funny and it's a joke, it's actually true. I mean, there's, if you can read basic English, you can read the, these sentences. Is so it really true
0: all the way? How, how, is it true to, at the level of conceits and figurations, which are incredibly complicated and idioms torqued? And is it really that straightforward? A kind of writing? The grammar the is. The grammar is. Yeah.
2: The, I think rhetorically, it might even kind of hang together just enough because of the sentences and the flow of the language, but but the ideas in them, they, they're they not entirely broken from each other. I think that's one of the interesting things about this poem as potentially questioning what the avant-garde means in his own career, right? Mm-hmm. That. You know, this is not a poem that is um, registering the thousand cuts, right? This isn't completely broken down below the word. This is a rhetorical, phenomenological exploration of of what it means to even think there's a self or something like that. Mm.
3: I mean, later in the book, two other quotes, uh, a single word means nothing. And then also, when the world is weird, being bounced around on a word trampoline won't get you any rest. (laughs) So again, this is the skepticism about this avant-garde project, as which he's then acknowledging I'm writing normally, and that either under your Cold War Manchurian candidate scenario, that would mean you had been the abdu- abductee mm-hmm. of this conventional socialization process. But he's twisting it so that you don't really know whether the abduction is in fact what made you avant-garde and reject the conventional wisdom, or whether it's actually this normative socialization process. Bruce, you've thought a lot about this, obviously.
0: The story of language writing, to quote him, is this your take? Do you do you get this take on it? Um and the self- I don't con- share this you take. You don't share it, but no, you get I don't
3: it. I don't ha- I didn't have the classical literary training that bob did i mean literally classical literally classical with the emotional investment that typically comes from that Mm -hmm. Um, and i also don't share any particular skepticism about the avant-garde project of so-called language writing what if the
0: skepticism is just for the sake of the comedy that's the essence of bob perlman's writing could it be that the comedy drives him to do that but that he doesn't have skepticism because i don't actually see that much as much skepticism as you guys do It is funny. I
2: see some... Well, so there's this interview that Peter Nichols does with him that's in the Jacket special issue on Bob Perlman, which I edited. So it was like
0: you edited it. Can we say it's 2009 or 2010? Yeah, that's about right. I have a piece in that, too. That's about right. Well edited.
2: In the interview, they discuss this poem, and um, Mm. Bob talks about this way that the avant-garde can... An avant-garde moment can turn into just a series of tricks... So I think what he's saying in that interview he's skeptical about is how certain things that we recognize from Stein or from Bruce Andrews or from Bob then can become kind of commodified and used without the same kind of innovation by other people. And I think at the time Bob's writing this poem, there's a whole new generation of people kind of following um, formally in a certain kind of style that might bring us to the place about all the models looking alike in the catalogs in this and poem, And those are you like know? people
0: in the anthologies. Yeah, yeah. But those are the conventional anthologies. They are. The right? campus, big chain but campus. That, I mean, it's, it's
2: hard story. for me to know, yeah. right? I, I don't
0: see any skepticism in that criticism of mainstream poetry in that section of the poem. Skepticism about avant-gardeism? About his own project, yeah.
3: Really?
2: I think there's skepticism, small press bookstores. opium dens, what's that? I've been wondering, I have not been able to really deal with small press opium dens. Is that where, is, is that he's a place where the He's talking about the kind of, of poems we're been? seeing
0: in these anthologies. The sexy underwear poem, the sturdy work boot poem, that's like a, mm-hmm. I don't know, pseudo-lefty proletarian mm-hmm. poem. Mm-hmm. I mean, the little blaspheming dress poem, the, he's just straightforwardly mocking this, right? And because he refers to
3: white space, which is marginalization, which is a key trope Mm, for him, no? You thought, no, I thought that was pristine display space. Oh, I see. I mean, later in the book, he says, the avant-garde? Professionalization, reviewing, reproduction. And then another place he says, reproduction or critique? Reproduction of critique. So that's the, you know, that's the, or the exception is now the only golden rule. So all these are like... Exception is working against memory.
1: I think part you know? of this is the the professionalization of literary criticism, of how literary history gets written. Mm. So I think that this is where there's this crossover between Bob being agent of writing literary criticism and being a poet also. So those quotes, like being the exception, like that would be good as an agent writing literary history, because you're trying to find the exception in order to write a literary history that would be unique. And I think he's here also drawing attention to the way that language writing sometimes would be talked about in certain academic circles, such as, well, it doesn't it doesn't really mean anything, right? But there's so much aboutness in here. It's, it's so much about meaning. So that's why he's waiting for his return ticket mm-hmm. to have any meaning. So that's where the two come together, literary history and his own work as a poet.
0: And specific literary history of modernism, right. the turn toward the poem itself, mm-hmm. the turn toward self-referentiality, that's mm-hmm. one of the things that he gains.
1: Right.
3: Well, when you say, when you use a word like ironic, or when you talk about a dialectic, I don't see the they reason- They talked about dialectics. Right. I don't <laughs> see the reason for those binaries. Yeah. You know, I don't see there's I I don't think of the synthesis. So it's like this colliding, ricocheting back and forth, a dialectic usually implies some kind of resolution, When well, there's no resolution here. You know, he's talking about the socialization process, mostly from this conventional verse point of view. So there is this, you know, the the force of socialization negatively charged seems to be mostly about conventional writing. And yet the tw- the twist is the alien abduction story at the beginning, which is this- And the end. Gr- end of the end, this monstrously grotesque version of a socialization process, almost even more mechanical than anything that you would invest your memory in, right? Like conventional writing. And so that's giving the negative value to socialization on both ends right both with regard to traditional training and the anthologies and all those that get selected but also with regard to this new camp this new movement that's you know coming from out of the sky you know invasion of the body snatchers style exactly, exactly. um so that's why you know it's it's just bouncing back and forth between those things and yeah. he seems attracted to both he does you know? he does
1: Yeah, I don't think it's a dialectic that gets resolved, but that is enacted through the reading of the poem. So that can be enacted an infinite number of times. Right? Right. So that's why I said it's a dialectic where the reader is the conduit, but it doesn't have a resolution.
2: Or, I mean, one phrase I was thinking of is it's a phenomenological attitude, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's just his attitude towards things is that they're never totally resolved, but there are ideas that are in flux and in dialogue with all the other ideas, right? So I think the avant-garde as both problematic and desirable is in this poem the whole way through kind of going back and forth like what Bruce right. just so if it's to, a career yeah.
3: strategy you know that's that's also being hinted at and he says at one place about anthologies later in the poem later in the book dominate the gene pool Make them read you for fucking ever. <laughs> you know, that, that would be the, the, the end result. But on the other hand, I mean let I me mean, let me just mention the my a phrase that only somebody deeply enamored of conventional values and and the, the values of familiarity, which he talks about, could have written this this line and later in the book, page sixty-six, alone and palely counting the red sumac leaf. Hmm. So, you know, what is that? I had to say when I was reading this, you know, where you really did lose your avant garde (laughs) (laughs) identification card in the laundry. laundry, (laughs) So otherwise that line would have been eliminated.
0: Yeah, that's right. So that's uh, some of the old stuff. uh, First home run. Uh, But after the little catalog of such stuff we have here, we have, I remember the words, but I can't get back there anymore. So it's a pro forma conventional lyricism that has nothing behind it, which actually winds up
4: oddly affirming the alien abduction story. The authorities deny any visitations, hardly a surprise. And I myself deny them. Think about it. What could motivate a group of egg-headed, tentacled, slimier-than-thou aestheticians with techniques far beyond ours to visit Earth, abduct naive poets, and inculcate them with otherworldly forms that are also, if you believe the tabloids, salacious? And these abductions always seem to take place in some provincial setting. Isn't that more than slightly suspicious? Why don't they ever reveal themselves hovering over some New York publishing venue? It would be nice to get some answers here. We might learn something about poetry, if nothing else. But I'm not much help, since I'm an abductee, at least in theory, though, like I say, I don't remember much. But this writing seems pretty normal. Complete sentences, semicolons, yada yada. I seem to have lost my avant-garde card in the laundry.
2: I guess I'm, I'm interested in... For me, I see Bob as appreciating the avant-garde and thinking innovation is important, but that it needs to be constant and it needs to be well thought through. So again, in the Peter Nichols interview, I just, I like how he's talking about, with regard to this poem, um, being concerned that the avant-garde can just turn into, and here's the quote, these things can dissolve into tricks and ticks. Mm -hmm. Formal innovations have to be made at the more social level of rhetoric, but I think he's already involved, he's engaging rhetoric pretty deeply in his writing at this point. Um, I think he's concerned, and because he was my teacher, I guess I can just confess that I know that he was concerned that my generation was just inheriting,
0: cut without up, thinking.
2: without thinking.
0: Yeah, so he really is aware of these traps, and you're saying that his pedagogy entailed hoping that you wouldn't simply fall into the, you wouldn't be abducted by the same aliens.
1: I feel like I want um, a capacious kind of space where you can have the high lyricism of the sumac leaf. You know, like, why not have that in this book? Well, it's I mean, always framed, a, although I don't know? know,
0: maybe Bruce can find the context. Yeah. It's usually framed by some wisecrack, uh, some very funny ironized Because theme.
1: it's this voice that's... So aware of and in love with the tactile properties of language at the same time that there's this rhetoric and philosophical mind at
3: work. Page 31. Art means throwing scraps of code (laughs) to the bodies as appetite
0: supplements.
3: (laughs) 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 Lots of fabulous material in this book, by the way. He's good. He's such a comic writer. (laughs)
0: Wow. Well, we could go on for a long time about this, uh, but why don't we go around. Everybody gets one more uh, final thought or final observation that we didn't get to make either about this poem or about the uh, discussion we've been having. So who wants to go first? One last thing each.
2: I was really interested in uh, No Thanks, Jay Peterman. No Thanks, Ordinary Evening in New Haven. And because you, Al, are... The Stevens scholar at the table. I wonder if I'm not you a J. Peterman. You're a J. Peterman <laughs> so scholar. So who is J. Peterman? I don't It know.
1: was that catalog that Elaine mm. Bennis wrote oh, yeah. for yeah. Yeah. on, on Seinfeld, Seinfeld, but it's a real catalog. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I don't know yeah. what he's doing there. Yeah. But,
0: um, yeah. Yeah. but uh, Ordinary New You're uh, like the only person Haven. who doesn't I mean, know that. <laughs> first of all, he's picked the wrong Stevens because that's actually the very first truly serial poem, or at least it's a it's a long poem that's that. Spicer, for instance, gave a lecture that it, somewhere I think in Vancouver and referred to "Ordinary Evening in New Haven" as the one poem that he would wrest control from the Academy, the New Critical Academy, for because so he, he picked an extremely experimental, going nowhere poem. But well, I but take if it that gonna... what he meant by that, because I bet he didn't hadn't reread the poem in a while. Stevens gave this poem as a reading at Yale, and. He's, Stevens is trying to stand apart from Yale and be a Hartford, West Hartford suburban guy and and bringing his ordinary evenings of doing nothing and his anti-intellectualism, so-called, to New Haven. So I see that as a refusal to do the easy thing. And I think of it as a, another one of these 50s – it's not a 50s poem, it's a late 40s poem, but as a 50s reference, he's refusing that. But that's
2: – yeah. So you mentioned Spicer on Stevens. Well, we're in this alien abduction poem, too. And there's Spicer I, I, in there, Spicer's right? Spicer's totally here, yeah. You want to explain that? Well, there's a lot of interpretations of what Spicer thinks about that or what's really going on, but essentially I guess Jack Spicer is somebody whose poems were uh, dictated by aliens from outside. Right. Um, he didn't write them.
0: I take it that we see that as Spicer's way, whether he believed it or not. Yes. Presumably he did. Um as uh, defamiliarizing the lyric eye and all that and having the voices come from somewhere else. So it's similar to an assemblage technique or a cut-up technique. And uh, Bob is not doing that as Kathy Lewis, He's not doing that at all because we can read all these sentences. mm -hmm. And yet he wants to be on the side of those who would have language that comes from nowhere. But my problem is that he uses the alien abduction story as a way of distancing himself from anti-communist 50s stuff so he wouldn't be affirming the Spicerian notion. He'd be saying, no, it's not. I'm protecting language writing as an innovation from those anti-communist stories. So it's ideologically extremely confusing or complicated.
2: I guess I, you, I wasn't thinking that he was saying no to Spicer in a way. I was thinking that he was affirming... Well, you know, maybe not positively affirming, but entangling in this very entangled poem this idea that the self is completely mediated and and constructed of things outside, right? Right. So whatever's on the radio is who you think you are. The boys in the catalogue are the boys. So let me ask you, does dad
0: falling out of the car matter to the poet?
2: It probably does, right? I visions of masculinity, whatever they are, when you're a boy, right? You're told what you're what big boys
1: are like they fall out of the car they have they hit home runs it's actually dad
0: who actually fell out of an actual car a memory Kathy Lou final thought
1: it seems like this book in some way marks a closure or a pivot point in his work because there's this poem to the future and it has this kind of sense of um, elegy to it he writes I always expected some kind of indefinite continuance But it turns out my body was smaller and more attached to its beginnings than I thought. So the world will end up breaking apart. No surprise there, really, though I'll probably feel a bit shocked all the way through. So there's a sense of waking up to the shock of it all. And where is he going to turn as a scholar and a poet? You know, what's the next step to processing these different kinds of roles and this different kind of language and, and what... Will be made of it all.
3: Bruce Andrews' final thought: If I had more time to talk about a theme in this poem, that I was curious about, mostly because I'm working on Kant's critique of judgment at the moment, it's this whole notion of judgment. Later in the book, he says, "With judgment, learning to speak as naturally as a leaf." Back to the leaf again. But if I, the line I wanted—I just wanted to mention at the end back to this meaning as a dog following master's quote on page 63 of the book. It says, meaning as a dog following master's, scratching after hours in the local doghouse, a mea culpa inside each command. Mm. Flash floods leaving the syntax damp, pliable. And then this is, the mo- to me, just an astonishing line. But the dead, resistant as sand. Mm. So you know, the dead, the past, the memory is resistant somehow. Mm -hmm. But no, it's not because sand is not resistant. So what kind of resistance does that actually make up if you, as an inner resource, an inner investment for yourself to hold out against either the alien abduction or the supermarket consumerism or the canonization, you know, hierarchization bullshit? It's like, what have you got, you know, if it's just dead things.
0: And the answer, you know, the answer like to the question what have you got is nothing. I sense a nostalgia for modernism as a first aggressive wave of making it new of innovation.
3: Modernism's big adventure, he says.
0: And you know, there's that dream of being in the avant-garde army and marching with a bunch of modernists. So and I'm very affected by that, but so that so all of us are sort of nodding. So that's right. What does that add up to? Is it? A, I mean, that what Duchamp was doing, who's mentioned in this book, is something that might be worth going back to, given all the complications of what's come afterwards. Or is that mere nostalgia? What kind of memory is that? I what think, do you make of I that nostalgia?
3: I it's think it's this concern about the individual's place within the team. Yeah. Also, you know, like, are your resources purely personal? Is that sufficient to resist yeah. what needs to be resisted, or in fact, do you need to group yourself, clump yourself together with others, with all the dangers then that that represents? Yeah. Right. So, what's your, what are your choices really? You, right. know, yeah. you jo- join the team yeah. or try to hold out valiantly, heroically against? No, normally the heroicism is pushing forward, not resistance.
1: This is working the trouble with genius, right? So his scholarship That's his is scholarly, yeah. book,
0: which is a fine book. His First, I guess this really his, comes out of his dissertation. Right, Berkeley. so
1: he's looking at this very problem of the individual and the idea of genius and what it means to be part of an avant-garde and sort of the, the troublesome part of that, you know, Stein being this individual well, genius, right? V- the
0: book is very critical of yep. genius. So he, there mm-hmm. he's saying modernism was fine except for this genius thing. Exactly.
1: So that would be a critique so, of this idea of, of the individual.
0: Yeah. Well, my final word follows from um, what, uh, was just said and particularly with what bruce just said because the thing about 50 sci-fi and this book really is thinking a lot about that maturing candidate is sort of the end of that period anti-communist sci-fi and the thing about those uh, abduction and um, mesmerization stories is that they always picked in the town the little town the weakest most confused individual who is sort of longing to be different and then they're the most naive and then they get them, they turn them into pods. He writes in this poem, why don't they ever reveal themselves hovering over some New York publishing venue? It seems almost, I'm doing a little psychobiographical reading, but it seems almost as if Bob Perlman as poet has reached a point in writing this poem that he thinks he might be more of a provincial character who might be the one who got picked off and maybe this abduction was real and maybe he's not really the person that he is supposed to be in this avant-garde army, and uh, find that very affecting. And But at the same time, what's so great about this poem is that it falls into that problem, that trap, you might even say, while, while hilariously and brilliantly parodying the anti-language, anti-avant-garde, anti-modernist-ism as a version of um, anti-communism and anti-modernism from the earlier period, so that people who were truly modernist in the 50s and there weren't that many who were admitting to that got really blasted away by people who were saying they were anti-communist, but what they were was afraid of disjunctive language and pages where the margins were fucked up. And he's really got that. He's nailed that thing down about the 50s story, but he's wondering if maybe, in fact, he got abducted and it's all like a big... Uh, reveal at the end of a sci-fi flick where he wakes up and realizes he's still a a lyric individualist. Um, Well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for several of us or all four of us, if we have time, to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or any other world. So, Kathy Lou Schultz gathers some paradise.
1: Um, Amir Baraka's Collected Works uh, by Paul Vangelisti is out. And uh, given what a prolific writer he was, there's still opportunity for more folks to work on scholarly editions of Baraka's works. And I think that's you know, a gift that we give to one another as scholars and poets. So, shout out Great. to that collection.
3: Great recommendation. Bruce? Uh, shout out to a giant four volume work which I haven't yet found room on my shelf for, the the four volumes of Larry Eigner mm-hmm. that and Hardback that Stanford great. put out. Very amazing. And it's just, just it this is someone I mean, what Kathleen was saying about scholarship and baraka, I mean I think Eigner for people the, the baby boomers of the so called language poetry army, or not school, by the way, Um, uh, this would be somebody that we have always revered and tussled over the lack of attention to in the scholarly community. Can you take a second uh, off the cuff
0: and just characterize the writing of Larry Eigner? Uh, For someone who doesn't know Eigner, who might be taking this recommendation and finding the book or reading some Eigner, how would you describe it?
3: Well, one of the things I think a lot of us got from Eigner was what Bob in this book, of his book that we're talking about today is, is seemingly nervous about, which is the, the, the value of the individual word isolated on the page even within a phrase. You know, So there, there's a push in Bob toward, toward uh, normative grammar and as a, as a foundation for rhetoric. And what you have in Larry, Larry Aigner's work, is the complete dismantling of any rhetorical possibility because things are so, uh, not not so much disjunct, but they're just isolated. Yeah. You know, they're floating. Yeah. Well, we all recommend Aigner, so that's a great
0: recommendation. Kristen Gallagher, gather some paradise.
2: I got nothing.
0: You're not going to recommend anything?
2: mm I'm sitting here the whole time trying to think of how something. I recommend of Florida. Florida. Oh, really? I can What's recommend like a Florida. town. Key
0: West. E- is it Eatonville? Eaton- Eatonville? Eatonville is where is the
2: town that Zora Neale Hurston's right. family founded. Yeah. Um, well, because it's a historical town, it's been both protected, um, but then because it's Florida and um, for a lot of reasons, Republican and conservative and um, anti-black, um, the town has and been left traditional- to crumble. Yeah. So it's, right. the black, it's the first historically black—it's the first all-black town, um, you know, run and governed by African Americans in the U.S. And so they're not allowed to build anything or change the way it is. But it's also completely unfunded. So Joe's Corner Cafe is still there, but it's boarded up and it's totally dilapidated. And it's is really the Hurston House sad. still
0: happening? Because I visited there once yeah a very modest place
2: yeah absolutely modest um what's going on right now is the state is actually um there's a corporation that's trying to get the historical protections lifted from the town so that they can put a mall condos and a car dealership there so that might happen why florida. would anybody
0: on a sabbatical spend all this time in central florida
2: because it is uh, the perfect microcosm for everything that is great and horrifying about the United States. It's sublimely beautiful. Um, There's a strong strain of individualism in the people. They're very interesting, a little cracked out. Um, And the government is so dysfunctional and crazy and corrupt that amazing, wonderful things are laid to waste every day. It's very sad.
0: Thank you. I... My... uh uh, what do we call this? Gathering paradise um, is <laughs> s- the aforementioned Sally Silvers. Uh, so uh, the website, Bruce, Sally, Sally silvers, silvers dance, dance. dance, dot com, dot com. And I, I imagine that Sally space, Silvers space dance will get you uh, on a search, your favorite search engine to this. Um, lots of performance, especially if you're, in your, if you're in New York, but if you go to that site, you can find out where she's performing next. And uh, I, I, Fortunately, signed up or maybe Sally signed me up for getting news. And um, I regret that I'm not always in New York at the right time, but I highly recommend doing that. And if you're lucky, you'll see our uh, poem talker, Bruce Andrews, behind a giant mixer doing some sound stuff. To it. Well, that's all the uh, egg headed tentacles, slimier than now aestheticians we have time for on Poem Talk <laughs> today. <laughs> Poem Talk at the Writers' House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs and Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writers' House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks to my guests, Kristen Gallagher, Kathy Lewis Schultz, and Bruce Andrews, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner. And to Poem Talk's editor, Amaris Kachansky, this is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of Poem Talk.